Church. My name is Danny. If you are new today, thanks for being here. If you're tuning in for the first time and streaming us, we're excited that you're here. I'll try to explain a little bit of what you just experienced. Uh, we're in a series right now called Melodia, and we are taking different uh, melodies, different samples of songs from different genres to represent that we all have different tastes, that we all have different worldviews, and that as our church community begins to open back up, and as our nation begins to open back up, that we're going to be coming together and doing life alongside people who uh, appreciate a whole different kind of melodia than us, a whole different kind of genre. So we've been going through the one another verses, which are verses that talk about how we should treat one another, even if we think their taste in music or their worldview or their a political standpoint or the things they believe about the virus or whatever it is that you're dealing with uh, are different than yours, how we're still supposed to treat people. So uh, every single week we play a different 
uh, piece of music, and this week uh, we played that one. So we'll start off like we have every other week. How many people, this is my jam. You're like, this, you finally played my song, Danny. This, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm aging some of you, aren't I? Uh, how, many, how many people are like, I, I don't even know what I just heard right then, and yeah, okay, honestly, yeah, you're like, what, what was that man screaming in the background? Let me, uh, let me, let me explain a little bit. This song is called Paint It Black, and it's recorded by the uh, English rock band. You may have heard of them known as the Rolling Stones. The song was released as a single on May 7th, 1966. How many people remember that? Yeah? Oh, good, good, good. And it was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It was included as the opening track on the American version of the band's 1966 studio album, Aftermath. It is an up-tempo song with Indian, Middle Eastern, and Eastern European influences featuring a sitar pl- uh, played by multi-instrumentalist Brian Jones. And for those of you that want to know what a sitar looks like, that's it right there. We have any sitar players in the house? Anybody? You're like, ah, oh, I love that sitar. Wish we should have some sitar in our worship. Uh, contemporary reviews at the time of the song were actually quite mixed, with a lot of critics believing that the sitar sound specifically was an attempt to copy the Beatles who had a similar sound at the time. Nonetheless, the song was a chart success for the Stones. The song spent 11 weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, including two at number one, and spent a total of 21 weeks on the U.K. singles chart, including one week atop the chart there. Retrospectively, critics have considered Paint It Black much more favorably, with Rolling Stone magazine recently raking it one of the greatest songs of all time. So it's an interesting song. It, 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 was, a, it was a song that, uh, that I think was chosen because of really what the lyrics, if you were to slow them down and, and just dive into them, are speaking to. For the song speaks from a place of heavy struggle and sadness. It's this idea that, uh, that uh, one of the artists wrote, the song's written from the viewpoint of a person who is depressed. He wants everything to turn black, to match his mood. And so uh, the song is just, it's really dealing with a lot of, around what Dave shared during worship, which interestingly, uh, I had a feeling this entire weekend, starting Thursday through, through today, would, would be a powerful one because I didn't tell Dave what I was speaking on. I didn't tell Dave that we were going to talk about a struggle and sadness and, and kind of how God can use that in your life. And Dave, all on his own Thursday, shared that not knowing what I was speaking on, and I knew then that, um, that this weekend was going to be something the Holy Spirit was just going to kind of use to, to accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish. And so uh, for those of you in the room who are struggling, for those of you in the room who, who wrestle with maybe a situation you're in right now, or maybe you have some chronic depression or different things like that, uh, I, I believe this service will be a blessing to you. The song fits quite well around that topic, around the idea of sadness and difficulty and all those sorts of things. And um, I guess I just want you to know before we dive into this that, that today's not going to fix the situation you're in. I think sometimes we, 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 we get to church and somebody gets on stage and they're like, I'm going to talk about the difficult stuff and how God's going to make it all good. That, that's not what I'm here to do today. I'm just here to sit with you in your stuff and hopefully give you some perspective around how God oftentimes uses that, I know he has in my life, to bless you, to bless people around you, and ultimately to, to bring glory to him. 
So that's what we're going to do. Today I'm going to talk to you about what struggle can accomplish. And I really have only one goal in mind, that's not to fix it. Instead, the goal I have in mind today is to stir you. The goal I have in mind today is to, is to maybe, just for a second, take you out of the cycle or take you out of the spinning or take you out of the, the digging or the, the grappling or the, the, the sleeplessness and to stir you into a place where, where, where you can be authentic with God about where you're at. The verse I'm using for that is Hebrews 10.24. This is our one another verse for the week, and it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. For even in the midst of your struggle, even in the midst of your difficulty, there is still a lot that God can accomplish in your life and in my life in spite of the things I'm dealing with day to day. And oftentimes, I think we're going to see he actually uses the things I'm dealing with day to day to bless me and people around me. Amen? Okay, so not here to fix anybody, but here to be authentic, to talk about struggle, and to, to just open up the room to let God do what he's going to do. There are tons and tons and tons of biblical examples of godly men and women in the Bible struggling. First thing I want to talk about is that church oftentimes think that you're struggling because of sin in your life. Now that could be very true. There is, there is probably situations in the room or people at home watching right now who are struggling because of decisions they've made. And that, that, is, that is true, that, that if you probably had some counsel or if you uh, had a, a better sense of, of where and when to uh, apply the gifts God has given you, then maybe you would struggle less. And I still think this sermon will work for you because you're still inside a struggle. But there are some people in the room who, if I'm not careful, will try and dismiss this sermon because the situation that's happening in their life is not their fault. It's genetic, if it's a, if it's a chemical imbalance. It's uh, circumstantial, if it's something, a trauma that has happened to you that is now causing consequences in your life. It could be something as, as severe yet every day as a car accident that's now causing chronic pain that you, you wasn't your fault and now you're dealing with all these issues uh, to childhood abuse that has uh, systematically kind of taken how you see the world and, and undone it. And now you have to try to view this world from this place that was damaged early on. These are all different and honest and authentic places of struggle. Either way, the Bible says that what you're dealing with is a human experience and that oftentimes it is very, very sadly normal. David himself wrote, you have kept count of my tossing, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? This is a man who's crying himself to sleep while not sleeping, who recognizes that although God is the, 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 the one above, the, the all-powerful, that for some reason David is still suffering in spite of that. This is David who is a man after God's own heart, and yet he does not gloss over his sadness. He expresses it to God openly over and over and over again. We have other primary characters in the Bible like Moses and Elijah. These two heroes of the faith, both of them, during stressful, struggling seasons in their life, confessed to God that they preferred to die than live in their current reality. That they, they had suicidal feelings. That they didn't want to deal anymore with what was happening here. And these were people that had a fairly profound faith. 
These were people that were leading huge movements of holiness and redemption, and yet they themselves found themselves in a place that ultimately overwhelmed them to the point that, like David, they didn't sleep, they didn't eat, and they just didn't want to exist anymore. So no matter where your struggle's coming from, whether it's from choices you've made or from choices other people have made or from something that, that some of my non-Christian friends will say that the universe has done to you, starting to lean into that talk more and more in my, in my talks with my non-Christian friend, they're like, yeah, this the universe, man, is just out to get me. And I'm like, oh, that must, that's a bummer. I'm sending you good thoughts, you know, <laughs> like, like trying to speak their language, but I'm like, here's a thought of goodness. I'd love to pray for you, but you don't believe in God. And it's like, no, I don't. But I do believe that Jupiter's out to get me. And I'm like, uh, to each his own, to each his own. The important thing is that none of these people were rebuked by God for their feelings. None of them. None of them were like, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm leading, you know, a couple million people out of Egypt, and I watched the Red Sea, but now these people are attacking me, and I'm kind of older, and I'm kind of sick of it, and I just want to, I'm just finished. And God was like, how dare you? Don't you see all the beautiful things I've done with your life? No. Never in the Bible does God rebuke somebody for being authentic with their feelings. It's almost as if David, Elijah, and Moses all screamed at once, life's terrible right now. I just want to paint it all black. Paint the sun black. Paint everything black. Just just darken it all because there is no right and there is no light. And instead of God saying, how dare you, or here's a lesson, or here's something I'm going to do to make it all go away, it's as if God leans forward and quietly whispers in their ear, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's paint it black. Let's just sit in the midst of this struggle. Over and over we see in the Bible again and again that God is not shy, and the Bible is not shy about admitting the realities of human emotion. This is because struggle is part of life, and it is not condemned. Jesus himself said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that In me, you may have peace in the world. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus himself is saying, listen, here's the deal. It's going to get hard. It's going to get tough. But if you can be in the situation with me, then you can survive it. And the Bible even shows that eventually you can thrive within it. But the first thing we have to do is put away the churchiness put away the religiosity and recognize that Christians are permitted to call trouble for what it is. So every time a friend has a problem, stop telling them it's going to be okay. Because it might not be. Stop telling them that you've been there. Because the reality is you may have been in a situation like theirs, but you haven't been in theirs. Stop trying to speak niceties into it or Bring them verbal flowers, which I've always never understood. Well, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Well, if handling it, by handling it, you mean crushing me to the point of not wanting to live, you're right. Because God gave Moses and David and Elijah apparently so much that they decided they didn't want to live here anymore. So we tell people these things instead of sitting inside their stuff with them, instead of just sitting down next to them, Instead of making them a hot cup of tea and just being there while they vent or curse 
or spit or cry or sleep. This appears to be what God does. And if we're supposed to be like Jesus, maybe this is more what we should do. We should just sit with people in the midst of their stuff, letting them know that no matter how low, no matter how dark, no matter how sad, we will stay with them. And not because we've been there, but because that's what God did for us. Those are their stories. I sit with a lot of people in a lot of difficult situations, and they usually come looking for answers that I don't have. Most of the time, the biggest thing I can do is what I'm doing, I hope, for you right now or any of you watching at home, letting them know, hey, where you are, I can be. And where you are, others have been. You're not alone. And God can still meet you in the midst of your struggle. I got a, a, a prayer request. The church got a prayer request a couple weeks ago. Uh, a young man who did what I'm saying right now, who just was authentic with the church community that he goes to. He watches us right now. He's probably watching online. Uh, and also with his God. I want to read you with permission his prayer requests. His name is Sean. This is what Sean said. I don't have any dreams. For the longest time, I haven't had any dreams of what I want in the future. I haven't had a plan or drive or destination in sight for as long as I can remember. And I'm partially to blame for this. Whenever I get involved in my own life, that's when things get screwed up. I've lived by this and have seen it play out over and over. I've always figured that I should be whoever God hardwired me to be. And as long as I don't get in his way with frivolous dreams, his plan will work through. Well, that was all well and good. And then the pandemic hit. And now all I see is darkness. Yes, I've been traveling in a fog for years now, not knowing and not pretending to know where the future was going to take me. But at least back then, I had events to look forward to. Family gatherings, conventions to reconnect with friends, bar nights and pinball with my wife and friends I don't work with anymore. Now, now though, I've had nothing to look forward to for almost a year. It's been the same grind, the same suffocating paranoia. This feels never ending. Nothing feels good anymore. Even limited gathering with family members provides little to no comfort because my guard must be kept up. So, just pray that God grants me a second wind or something, please. This isn't going away, and even knowing that overwhelming victory belongs to God doesn't provide much comfort right now. It's like, yes, when I'm finally free from this mortal coil, I will have victory through Jesus. But until then, I just have to suffer from the day-to-day -day of this present pandemic. Isn't that right? I'm not asking for the pain to go away. That's not going to happen. Just pray. Pray I make it out of this. I need to stay alive, but I am not okay right now. These are the kinds of postures I believe the Holy Spirit uh, shows up in the most. Postures where people are open-handed and authentic with each other. This isn't just a, a private prayer request. This is something public that the community surrounds him. This is this is something that people call, and I called him myself. This is, this is kind of that place where you just say, I am not okay right now, and you tell people around you, 
but it's also that posture before God that says, God, I know in the end that you're going to accomplish all you want to, but I'm not surviving what you're accomplishing. This sounds so scary, doesn't it? Like, how can you say that? Because the Bible teaches me that's what I'm supposed to say. For when I can be fully authentic with God and release that to him and to you as a church, like Dave did just a moment ago, when I can do that, then suddenly between the community I live within and the God that I serve, I find new life. We see this, but it's not easy. So what I want to answer now is what does struggle like this accomplish? How does it actually affect anything within my real world? And I think it's important that you see this so that you understand that in the midst of the pain that you're feeling, or if you're supporting somebody else who's going through this, that you can point out some of these accomplishments that struggle brings. Uh, Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, for those of you that grew up in church? Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and they were born to Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the, the great father of promise that God came and said, I will, I will make you a great nation. You will have more people in your, in your uh, legacy than there are stars in the sky. It's this really epic story. He has Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was, just by a few minutes, the older brother. When their father Isaac was on his deathbed, he asked Esau, the older twin, to kill some wild game for him with the promise that once he returned, he would bless him, guaranteeing him a double portion of inheritance. While Esau was out hunting, Jacob, the shrewd, bratty younger brother, I have one of those, he's in the back row right now. (laughs) Esau went hunting, and what Jacob did was he went in and he tricked his father into blessing him instead. When Esau returned, Jacob had already received the blessing, meaning Jacob would get the double inheritance. Esau, of course, was furious and vowed to kill him, so Jacob fled. And they go on these separate paths where Esau's always looking to kill him, and Jacob goes on this journey to try and find out who he is and what he's about, and, and it's just this really long and epic story. But eventually, Jacob has a change of heart. And after years of living apart, he decides to return to his home and hopes to make peace with his older brother. On the night before he's about to meet his brother, he sends everyone ahead of him, and then he stays alone in a tent. And this is what it says happens. Genesis 32, 24 through 29. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but he changed his name to Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob has this experience where he wrestles with the spirit of the Lord in the form of a man. And he wrestles with him so long and and so much that eventually this, 
this man says, let me go. And Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And the man puts his hip out, and Jacob still says, I'm still not going to let you go until you bless me. And then he goes, okay, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to change your name. And if you follow the rest of the story, Jacob eventually goes, and he falls before his brother, and he asks for forgiveness, and his brother grips him and kisses him, and they make up. And it's this really beautiful reunion, this really beautiful story. But what was actually happening in that tent? What was actually occurring in the midst of a man who previous to that had had years and years and years and years of struggle? What was the outcome of it? There's a little clue verse inside this struggle story that I think could bless a lot of you and it blessed me this week. It's a little verse tucked away right after Jacob's wrestling match. The very next morning, Genesis 33, 20, it says, and then there Jacob erected an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel. And El Elohi Israel means God, the God of Israel. Okay, now Jacob's name had just been changed to Israel. So the result of Jacob, now known as Israel, wrestling with God, according to scripture, is that he built an altar and called it God, the God of Israel. So why is that significant? Why is that important? Why is that like cool? Like, there's all sorts of altars built throughout the Bible. Why is this guy's altar any different? And it's very, very important, but you have to go back a couple passages previous to the wrestling match to really see it. First, you have Jacob's dream, where he sees the ladder. He's the one, Jacob's ladder, that, that he sees angels going back and forth. And in the dream, God speaks. There above it stood the Lord, Genesis 28, 13. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. So Jacob's dreaming, he sees the angels, and then he sees God say, I'm the God of Abraham and I'm the God of Isaac and I'm gonna bless you differently than the blessing you stole. I'm gonna bless you till that you become the nation you're supposed to be. Do you see anything significant about that small passage? Okay, I'll give you another one. Genesis 32, 9, still before the wrestling match. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Do you see anything significant about that one similar to the one previous? Okay, I'll give you another one. Still before the divine wrestling match, Genesis 31, 42. If God, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. There is a common thread throughout every single passage that talks about Jacob prior to the wrestling match. We can see clearly mentioned in all of those passages that God is the God of Abraham and that God is the God of Isaac, Jacob's grandfather and father, but, and I'll put this on the screen, nowhere in scripture does it say that God is the God of Israel, Jacob, until after he wrestles with God. He's always somebody else's God. He sees the responsibility of the family. He's still taking charge of the legacy of the family, but it's always yeah, God, you're the God of my grandfather. Yeah, God, you're the God of my father. God himself in the latter dream introduces himself and says, you know me. 
I'm the God of your grandfather. I'm the God of your father. But not until Jacob wrestles with God, not until he goes through this transformational evening, does God actually become his God, and he makes an altar that actually professes this to everyone around him, that he is God, the God of Israel. God, the God of Jacob. Until Jacob had a divine wrestling match with God, until he had a very personal struggle with his creator, his faith was not cemented. It was not his own. He knew of the legacy. He went to church every Sunday. He showed up. He understood the verses. He may even have sang on worship, but he was only living his faith vicariously through his culture, not through his heart. It had not been solidified in his life until after the struggle. This is, this is what struggle can do. This is what I believe struggle is supposed to do. Whether it's something that happened to you or a decision you made, there is opportunity and there always has been inside my own life within my struggle to figure out how I am supposed to be, not just with my world, not just with my culture, not just with my responsibility, but with my God. And inside those struggles, inside those 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 difficulties seems to be the place where God and I form that unbreakable bond that lasts and transforms. This isn't only a Jacob phenomenon. We see a similar sentiment in the book of Job. After Job literally loses everything, and I mean everything, his kids, his wealth, his health, and spending untold hours arguing and complaining with God and his friends and his wife, Job finally sees things from God's perspective when he says in Job 42.5, I had heard rumor of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job, he didn't know God until he knew God in the struggle. And it changed Job forever. He became a different creature out of it. We can see Towards the end of Jacob, Israel's life, there are a few hints that he experienced a similar change in his relationship with God. Genesis 35, 3, he's speaking. He says, then let us arise and go to Bethel, or Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. It's like, let's do this for the God that I serve. Yeah, I know my grandfather served him. Yeah, I know my father served him. But I want to do this now for the God that I serve. Again, as he's dying and he's blessing his grandchildren, we see a tender moment as he reflects once again on his own relationship with God. Genesis 48, 15, and 16. Then he blessed Joseph, his son, and said, May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. He, he, he became what God called him to be, but it happened inside the struggle. And I want to point out something significant inside Jacob's struggle. Jacob leaned into the struggle. He ran from it for years and years and years, right? He's running from his brother. He's running from his calling. He's running from 
the, 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 the blessing that his own father that he stole but still stuck to him. He ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And you can follow this if you want to study him. He runs and runs and runs until he finds himself in that tent wrestling with God face to face. And it's like something clicks inside his brain and he leans in and he's like, you know what? I've been running too long. And instead of trying to get out of the tent, he stays in the tent so much so that the spirit of God's like, let me go. And he's like, nah, you and I, we got some struggling to do. And he struggles and he struggles and it permanently marks him. It, it dislocates his hip. As a matter of fact, the, the Jewish people still don't eat meat from that area because of how God wounded Jacob. But he stays inside the struggle so long for so many hours that God blesses him and says, from this struggle, you will transform into a new person. You will have these sons and they will become this nation that lives still to this day. So this is my quiet, loving challenge to you. Perhaps today, some of you, you're struggling to really know this God that I'm preaching about right now and that we talk about every single Sunday because you're avoiding the struggle. You haven't even met God in the tent yet. You're still out there running around. You show up, you check the boxes, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do to be a good son and to be a good daughter of whatever thing you're trying to perform before. But at the end of the day, you don't settle down enough to actually struggle. You don't want to. You don't want to limp. You don't want to hurt. And so you just, you just fake it all. And you know it. And it makes you hollow inside. And you don't feel it all the time. It's probably just when you're in bed early in the morning or super late at night or when you're by yourself at a traffic light. Maybe you have a lonely lunch at work or maybe you just have 10 minutes that no one's uh, talking to you and you're not acting out. And all of a sudden in the midst of that space, you realize there's something God's inviting you into, but you don't want to feel that. So you run. And you show up here and you raise your hands and you do your very best to try to engage with God in this beautiful place but you miss this, this greater opportunity that people saw the real love of Jesus when he was hanging on the cross, struggling to breathe. That's when people saw who Jesus was. That's when he became undeniable. When he rose from that struggle, marked by that pain. And so I'm just here to tell you, for those in the room who are just avoiding the struggle, you're avoiding the confession, you're avoiding the repentance, you're avoiding the redemption, and you are just playing the church game. You can keep doing it, and you will stay exactly as you are right now. You will not transform, and you will not pass on a new legacy to those behind you. And you probably will not be a light in this world full of other people who are also running from struggle. Or you can set down the baggage, you can walk into the tent, and you can bleed a little. And it will feel terrible. Like, like really, really terrible. More people in church should tell you that. And you'll want to escape. You'll want to escape. And God may even offer you an out. Let me go. And I'm just here to challenge you today. I'm here to stir you today. You grab hold. You say, no. You and me, we got some struggling to do. And you watch what God does with your willingness to sit in that ugly 
and difficult space. There's other people in the room. Perhaps you're neck deep in struggle right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me just say that God, I think, is still trying to reveal himself to you. You better not let him go too early. You better tell him you want to paint it all black. And you better recognize this. This took me a long time to realize, but it it opened me up to all kinds of things I never had seen before. What if God is actually loving me by keeping me within the very struggle and storm that I'm so desperately trying to escape? What if he's like, Danny, enough is enough. I'm going to mess you up now. I'm going to. I'm going to wrench your hip. Most likely, I'm going to wrench your heart. And Danny, you are not going to survive as you are. And so I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your story. I'm going to change the the legacy that your family has passed down from, from family to family to family. It's going to start with you, and it's going to start with this. You are going to be the one who's willing to sit in the struggle. This, I think, is how our God loves us. This, I think, is how we are supposed to wrestle. This is how we're supposed to sit in the midst of our suffering and our difficulties. And and for those of you who are in a season where you are not struggling right now, this is how we're supposed to come alongside other people. Do not pull them out of that tent. Do not promise them that it's going to be okay. Do nothing but hand them water on the brakes and then push them back in for round seven. That's your whole job. That's your whole job. You're not supposed to save anybody. That is not your responsibility. You are supposed to go through your own struggle, develop your own limp so that they can see in your eyes you get it and you're not just out there pretending like, you got this, that looks horrible. You can do it, this is terrible. Like you're supposed to be in it, weeping with them, hurting with them, encouraging them. You're supposed to be how God has been with you. And you were supposed to point them to that cross and to that Jesus and to the way that he wants to transform their lives. That's how we're the hands and feet of Jesus. That's how we show them how much he loves them. And that's the way that God transforms our world all around us. So as we do here, we're going to create some space for you to, to evaluate who you are within the story of struggle and the church and the community. So everyone bow their heads if they would and close their eyes. I'll have the worship team come out to prepare a song for us. Maybe you're somebody, you're on the outside, you're, you're in a good season right now. And you, you need to ask God to give you the proper posture to support the people in your life that are struggling so, so painfully right now. Or maybe... You're in the tent. And you need the strength to to go another round. The strength to sit in that space, to grab hold, to hold on. And very likely, there's quite a few in this room, you've been avoiding the struggle altogether. You've been running and running and running. And God is calling you to stop. He's calling you to transformation. He's calling you to a new story and a new way. And this morning's that time. 
Heavenly Father, wherever we are within our struggle story, whether we're supporting or running or right in the midst of it up to our necks, we ask, God, that we would experience your love beyond our normal understanding. We just sit in this space with you now. We receive your presence and the beauty of what you do. In Jesus' precious name, amen.
Yeah, he loves